Boy, what a tremendous testimony for the saints. He will hold me fast. Has that been your testimony this morning? You've been held fast by the love of Christ, compelled and controlled by the love of Christ? I certainly hope so. Y'all did a, I know we're a little down in number today, but y'all sang fantastic. If I can hear you over myself, you're singing pretty loud, and I thank you for that. Um, go ahead. You know where to turn to, right? 2 Samuel chapter 5 is where we are this morning. If you're a guest of ours, I say that because we've been parked here for quite some time, just really enjoying this beautiful picture in the Old Testament. Um, so much for us to learn here. We're going to start by reading the, just the first five verses. Our goal was to cover the first 16 verses of 2 Samuel 5 uh, this morning. But we're going to read those when we get to them as we go through uh, the text a bit. So we're going to just read 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you find yourself able to stand for the reading of uh, the word of the Lord, I'll invite you to do that now, understanding that this, what we've been given, is the king of the universe's word to us, his people. Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We're looking at an established king, an exalted kingdom. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, uh, Lord, we have just sung a prayer to you knowing and trusting that you will hold us fast. Father, we ask you at this time for your help. Uh, Lord, that you would work by your spirit through the declaration of your word in such a way that your people are transformed more and more into the image of your son Jesus. Father, it's our desire that the earth would be filled with your glory. That your knowledge might fill the earth as water covers the sea. Would you begin that in us right here and right now, we ask in the precious name of our King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay, I told this to the Wednesday night crew on Wednesday night, and I've become convinced over the course of this week that it would be impossible to overstate the significance of this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5, in the meta-narrative, the big picture of the Old Testament itself. In other words, I would say this, in the narrative and the story of the Old Testament, this chapter is arguably one of, if not, the most significant. Which is funny, right? Because 
likely, if I were to talk about important passages to you in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 5 would probably not make even near the top of the list. Not even top 10, likely not even top 20. In fact, if someone came up to you today before the service or yesterday before the service and asked you, hey, what is in 2 Samuel chapter 5? Few would be able to tell you. Yet, as it turns out, it is arguably the most significant passage in the Old Testament. You guys on the edge of your seats yet? You should be. Because here's why. 2 Samuel 5 is, in a typological way, the resolution to the conflict of the Old Testament. It's the resolution to the conflict. Let me put it this way. 2 Samuel 5 is to the Old Testament what the resurrection is to the new. Because in 2 Samuel 5, the Lord establishes David as king and exalts his kingdom for the sake of his people. So if you're not familiar with the narrative of the Old Testament, again, let me give you a quick overview. This would be helpful if you attended our Old Testament survey class on Wednesday nights, but... I digress. We were created, you and I were created by God and called to fill the earth with our creator's image and knowledge. The goal was to make earth like heaven. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Extending our father's rule over the earth. People were charged with the task of making the whole earth a temple of God. And we were to work in that temple of God as king priest. That's the overarching introduction to the biblical narrative. The story of the Bible. Of course, after the introduction, we know that the conflict comes up, doesn't it? And what's the conflict? We all sinned in Adam. Adam, as our representative, transgressed God's law and brought all of creation into rebellion. We all became homeless and estranged from God. Instead of making the earth like heaven, we made it like hell. Instead of filling the earth with priests that led all of creation in the praise of God, we've filled it with rebels who distort and deny the glory of the one true king. And so, hear me, the entire Old Testament from that point of conflict in Genesis 3 is about the resolution to the conflict. The entire Old Testament, every story we find in the scriptures fits into this overarching narrative that I just introduced. Every story has something to do with God's initial plan to fill the earth with his presence, glory, and knowledge until all creation glorifies and enjoys him forever. So 2 Samuel 5 is the resolution to that conflict introduced all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. Of course, 2 Samuel 5 is the Old Testament's temporary, physical, prototypical resolution. Scripture has already revealed before Samuel that the resolution is going to come, this is important, through a kingdom of priests that will bring blessing to the nations as they expand the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. 
all the way before the Bible, this is how it's introduced. This is what this resolution is looking for. This resolution is going to come through a kingdom of priests that will bring a blessing to the nations as they expand the kingdom of God to the whole earth. In fact, this is the whole point of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. God's plan is to bring forth a new garden, a land promised to Abraham and his descendants, a, a new people, a kingdom of priests, so they might take that garden and expand it to the ends of the earth. The end of Genesis illustrates how God is going to do this. It tells us that the way this is going to be brought about is that one man is going to be laid low and then exalted over them, bringing blessing to every tongue, tribe, and nation. We get all that just from Genesis. So the, so the primary storyline of the Bible then is about a land and a people. Geography and genealogy, dominion and dynasty, and the various stories we find in every part of the scriptures, they all fit together to describe the struggle of God's people to fill the earth with the presence and reign of God. But the resolution is going to come through a kingdom and a king. That's the picture. That's what we need. It's explicitly promised in the Torah. It's prefigured in Joshua and Judges and now even emerging in the book of Samuel. That is until 2 Samuel 5. When David, who was laid low, now receives the kingdom promised to him by Yahweh for the sake of Yahweh's people. There it is. If you like a good story, you can't find one better than this. See, the big idea of this climax, this resolution to the narrative is this. The Lord exalts David's kingdom for the sake of his people. The Lord exalts David's kingdom for the sake of his people. We find that particularly in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 5, where it tells us, So David knew that the Lord had established him a king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. That's the resolution. So now what we need to do is we need to move through the passage and see it. Let's start in verses 1 through 5, where we find very clearly that David is anointed king over all of Israel. David is anointed king over all of Israel. And if you've been with us since the beginning of 2 Samuel and you've read 1 Samuel along with us, you would know that this is something that has been long awaited. All the tribes and all the elders, they come to Hebron and they make David king. The tribes themselves even offer David three reasons why they should now come to him and make him king. I want to look at those three reasons we find in the first five verses. First, the first reason they come and make him king is they are his bone and flesh. Now this is almost comical when you understand the context of these are being the very people who joined Saul and his rebel, rebellion against the Lord and often tried to take David's life. But these are the elders of Israel and they come and they offer him this one reason particularly that they're going to make him king is because David you are bone and flesh. This, this phrase really is, it's just a, no less a plea to their common origin, their common experience, purpose, or destiny. They share a history. They're not foreigners or strangers, they're family. 
So the two kingdoms should become one under the reign and rule of David. We could also point out that the law of the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17 makes it necessary for the one who rules over Israel to be bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh. So David's qualified, in other words. Interestingly enough, we haven't really seen this be a priority at all at this point up into the narrative, have we? In fact, it brings to recognition, reminds me of Judges chapter 9 verse 2. You remember the story of Abimelech? He uses this very phrase when he goes to his kinsmen and tells them, Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. Right before he receives money from them and slaughters 70 of his other brothers. We haven't seen this type of unity at all thus far in the biblical narrative, have we? No. In fact, in the more immediate context, we know that we find ourselves coming to the end of a war that's a struggle between brothers. The lack of unity among brothers is emphasized in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, that Abner's message to Joab we've seen very clearly where it says, Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? We are blown, bone and flesh. They should know better. right? It's not like they haven't seen it before. Cain, Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses and Israel, Bimelech and his brothers, Benjamin and Israel... Listen, if we sang last week that it is good and pleasant when the brothers dwell together in unity, we actually don't see this illustrated very often in the scriptures, do we? What we do see illustrated very often in the scriptures is that it is wretched and miserable when there is disunity. See, that, that's the first reason David should be made king. We are your bone and your flesh. And I would just go ahead and encourage you to make the very direct and obvious application of that point. Friends, we know this to be the case. It is better when we dwell together in unity. Amen. Remember, yes, we are bone and flesh of all earthly families, certainly. But there is a bone and flesh relationship that even supersedes that. We are bone and flesh of our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, made one flesh with him by virtue of faith. Therefore, the relationship represented through the membership of this body of this church, they're, they're actually deeper and more significant than even our blood relationships. It's hard to say, but it's true. I mean, many of us have earthly family members who cannot understand that. In fact, they're quite put off by it, yet it's true because it's what God's word says. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Amen. Reason number two. Not only the first reason that David is bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh, that's why they made him king, but second one's pretty obvious and it's, it's again, it's comical. David has been like a king to them. That's their second reason they give of why they're making David king. They say, David, you've been like a king to us. Look at verse 2. Also in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. Which if, if I were David, I'd be like, really? <laughs> now you're bringing this up? Because you seem to like want to follow Saul after that. But instead what they say is, David, it was you. 
And every time I read this, I can barely read it without giggling. It's like, it's like one of those memorable quotes from a romance movie, right? It's like they turn to David and say, David, it was you all along. <laughs> you know, the girl's been led astray. She finally realizes that this guy has been right under her nose all along. So Israel comes back and they're like, David, it was you. You had me at hello, right? So that's reason number two. But again, think about applying this here. This is such a picture in many ways of our relationship with the Lord, isn't it? That is, before the Lord graciously intervened and saved us by his grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, you and I were following the prince of this world. We were following a Saul-like king, and we were doing so gladly. But then what happened? The Lord removed the veil from our hearts. He opened them up, and we saw, Lord, it was you all along. You have been the one who has led us in and brought us out. So we can relate to this. Reason number three, they made David king. We see it at the end of verse 2, and this is really the only one that matters. They made David king because the Lord had said David would be king. The Lord said it. In fact, we know, don't we, we've seen this already, that this passage is a fulfillment of God's promise to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David. And we're reminded that this is nothing less than the fulfillment of what the Lord has already sworn to do. Just as David at the end of this section in verse 12 uh, says, we'll, we'll know that the Lord has done what he's sworn to do. Again, it's not hard to apply that, is it? The faithfulness of God's word, it's one of the major themes of First and Second Samuel. God is faithful even when his people are unfaithful. Really, it's one of the primary themes of the entire Bible, isn't it? God is not a man that he should change his mind. What the Lord promises to do, guess what? He will accomplish. And so every time we encounter a passage that records God's ability and willingness to do what he has sworn to do, you and I ought to be encouraged. This is who our God is. He always does what he has promised to do. And, and we should be especially encouraged when we, we find him doing so in the context of, of, of the unfaithfulness of his people. That God continues to fulfill his promise. Even when his people are being unfaithful, which is pretty much always the case. But God fulfills his promises. He does exactly what his word says he's going to do. His word is inexorable. But it gets even better. So, okay, we see now that David is an anointed king over all of Israel. We've been waiting for this. We've seen this take place. We celebrate. Yes, but I want you to notice something else in verses 6 through 10 now. Because what we read there is that David possesses the gates of his enemies. Now, hear me, and I want you to really focus in here, okay? This is going to be a little bit heavy, but this is this is actually a bigger deal, and I want to show you why. But let's go ahead and read the text, verses 6 through 10 together, okay? Catch this. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, 
David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Millo and inward. So David went on and became great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now I know, but trust me, this is a much bigger deal than any of us realize just reading that. So, so what we would say, right? Okay, David goes and conquers another town. Big deal. Not the first time we've seen that. But friends, this is Jerusalem. (laughs) This is a monumental moment in the life of Israel. And if you want to see it for yourself, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 14. If you want to see it, of course it will be on the screen, but if you want to turn the pages in your scriptures, you're welcome to do that. It's not that far. A couple books to the left. Turn to Joshua 14, and what we see is Joshua's done his part. Okay, He's come into the promised land. He's secured the land. There's temporary rest in the land. It's now being given to each of the tribes of, of Israel for their part. And the first allotment goes to Judah, which we would expect, right? And what we read in chapter 14 there is this fascinating tale of our boy, Caleb. Remember Caleb? We know this. He's one of the two spies along with Joshua who entered into the promised land and came back with a faithful report. Yes, there were giants in the land. Yes, the cities were huge. But we have Yahweh. Who cares? Let's go and take it. And Caleb's rewarded his faithfulness by being given the first allotment of land. And he chooses none other than... Hebron, you guessed it, wonderful. Hebron is not just a city though. Hebron is an area of giants. Big, tall, strong, bad guys. The type of guy that David went up against in 1 Samuel 17. Well, well, Caleb goes into that land and he, he says this beautiful statement of faith. I want you to hear this, pay attention to it, and press it upon your heart. He says in Joshua 14, 12, It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And indeed, the Lord is with him and Caleb takes Hebron. Caleb, again, he's prefiguring this David figure who's a giant slayer. He has David-like faith. He takes Hebron. And then listen, you read the rest of the allotment in chapter 14, then flip over to chapter 15, the allotment's given, but it ends kind of weird. Look at how it ends in chapter 15, verse 63 of Joshua. The Bible says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. See, this whole tale of Judah begins with this great act of faith at Hebron. But it fizzles out, doesn't it? It stalls before you get all the way to Jerusalem. Now let's go to Judges 1, just one book over, and we see where does the book of Judges start? It's in the days after Caleb dies. Judah still taking the land. The Lord has fulfilled his promises. He's given them the land, and now they're taking it. We see Judah having success as they're conquering city after city, and then we read this in Judges 1, verse 21. 
But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now Jerusalem is, is right on the border between the tribe of Benjamin and tribe of Judah. I know this is a lot, but you guys are doing great. can still tell you're paying attention. That's wonderful. But, but think about it. So you have Jerusalem, and it really doesn't matter who hasn't taken it. The reality is it hasn't been taken. The book of Judges goes on, and it really just gets worse. You start with Judah having success, and then it moves on to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's not conquered. But it only fades. It fizzles out completely into the section where all the tribes, again, they're taking their various allotment. But now you no longer read about people dwelling with the Israelites, you read that the Israelites are dwelling with the Canaanites. It's the way of the narrator to say things are getting worse. It's like every time that Israel comes right up to the walls of Jerusalem, they just fall apart. Then they come right up to the walls of Jerusalem again and they fall apart. See, now it's a big deal, isn't it? We understand that what happens in 2 Samuel 5 isn't just, yay, David took a new town, that's awesome. No, he's taken Jerusalem. As we continue to read our Old Testament, we realize, wow, it's Jerusalem. It's the place the Lord chooses for his name to dwell in Deuteronomy 12. This is the city of the king. It's where his throne is. Taking Jerusalem is a huge accomplishment. And see, even when we just narrow the lens a little bit and just think about the book of Samuel, we see that the way the story is told is actually bringing greater significance to the events that are unfolding here. Jerusalem is the impenetrable fortress of the haughty and proud. That's what it is. In fact, you read the text, right? You saw what they did? They feel so safe and secure behind their fortress. They tell David, listen. We're not even going to send our soldiers. The lame and the blind can defend this place. This is a picture of the haughty and proud, the spirit of humanity as they shake their fist at the Lord's anointed. They scoff and they despise the one who stands before them. In fact, really again, First and Second Samuel has this recurring theme about the Lord laying the proud low and exalting the lowly. Hannah's story and song introduces that theme and this struggle between Saul and David has really been a running illustration of it. But here at the climax, we have this taking of this Babel-like city that jeers and taunts the Lord's anointed. And, and in the end, I love this. The way this narrative is a bit anticlimactic tells the whole story, doesn't it? Think about it. This incredible battle scene is set up, right? I just want you to picture something. Um, the battle of Helm's Deep in the two towers of the Lord of the Rings is like the greatest battle scene in my mind ever. It's so awesome. The music's awesome. Everything's awesome. You have this tremendous setup with the army of orcs setting down, the army of, of, of elves coming to help uh, these men who look like they're just going to be ran over. It's not even going to be close, right? And the whole thing sets up and then that old guy accidentally lets go of the arrow and the whole thing begins and then really like half that movie's just that battle. But, but look at what happens in verse 9. You've got that kind of setup, right? 
You've got everybody getting ready. They're taunting one another. They're talking smack to each other. They're getting ready to battle. And then verse 9 of, of 2 Samuel 5 just goes on and says, Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called to the city of David, and David built all around from Millo and inward. What's missing there? See, it sets up, they gather the men, they go to Jerusalem, they're taunting them, and you can picture them just getting ready for a fight, and then the, the scene just shifts, and all of a sudden, the battle is over. There's not a mention of a single arrow shot, a sword wielded, nothing. Where's the battle? It just wasn't even worth recording. <laughs> It's like, it's like a basketball game between the 96 Bulls getting ready to play West Nassau High School, right? So you got Jordan and Pippen and Rodman, and they're taunting them. They're saying, guys, you can't even beat our water boys. We aren't even going to come out to the court to face you. And you look, and you see all the high school players, their eyes are just burning with anger and fire. And then all of a sudden, the scene flips to where it shows the scoreboard, and it's 100 to nothing with the Bulls losing. You're like... What happened? And then you say, man, those guys are awesome. But then you read, no, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, was with David. Oh, now it makes sense. Friends, do I need to apply this? You know I'm gonna, right? <laughs> this is really the message of Samuel in a nutshell. So please don't miss this and stop me if you've heard it before. The battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. How many times do we really have to hear it before we start believing it? It's really the point. The battle, say it with me, belongs to the Lord. Who does it belong to? The Lord. Just keep saying it. Keep reminding yourself because this is important as we read our Bibles. Do you know why we see something like this everywhere? Because we don't believe it and we tend to forget it. Listen, if the Lord says something over and over again, if he says it, then illustrates it, then says it again, then illustrates it again, you know why? It's not because he isn't creative and can't think of anything better to say. It's because you don't believe it. It's because I don't believe it. The battle belongs There's another application here, though, and I think it's worth mentioning. I love this. Friends, in sections 6 through 10 here, in the way that this battle is anticlimactic, we really have a picture of the end. What do I mean by that? See, the nations, they're doing what? They're raging against the Lord's anointed. They're mocking him. This is a picture of the end. When Jesus returns, it will be, in one sense, anticlimactic. Now, it will be eternally climactic in another sense. But, but when it comes to the last battle, listen. When that trumpet sounds and the Lord returns, it's not going to be no battle of Helm's Deep where it's an hour-long battle. No. It's going to be much more like flipping to the scene where it's a hundred to nothing. When Jesus returns, the haughty will be laid low in this world. And they will find that all their defenses are completely broken down. 
all their self-justification, all those idols that they have trusted in, they will find that they will be laid bare in a moment, in a blink of an eye, and forever. Why? Because they have exalted themselves and they have mocked and scorned the Lord's anointed. Stop me if you've heard this one before in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most people know that, don't you? John 3.16, you've seen the bumper stickers, right? But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on and said in verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Hear that. Whoever rejects the Son, whoever does not believe in his message, whoever does not trust in him alone for salvation, whoever does not take up their cross and follow him, whoever does not bend a knee recognizing that Jesus is the only true king, they are already condemned because they have not believed in him being the only begotten Son. Do you see this? Do you know right now that all the world stands and they're fortified Jerusalem and they yell over the wall, there is no God. What can he really do to us? You'll never get in here. I'm just going to live my best life now because in the end, that's all that really matters. And listen, it doesn't matter the lie. It doesn't matter the fortress they built. It's sand. It's worse than sand. It's dust. It's cardboard. It's paper. I don't know. Come up with something weaker. See, part of the reason I went to John 3 is because I think that there's this misconception in the minds of many that God is anything other than good, gracious, and merciful. He sent his son into this world to save the world and even now offers every man, woman, and child reconciliation, peace, and yet they condemn and confine themselves to hell. And they've got the gall to shake their fist in the face of God and say, oh, a God like you, so unloving and vengeful and wrathful and wicked. This is the one who sent his only beloved son that anyone who trusts in him might not perish but have everlasting life. How sad. How my heart breaks for the lost. But know this, friends, that there's coming a day where he's going to come and get his victory. And it'll be quick. So if you have any questions or doubts in your mind, Today is the day of salvation. Don't waste a minute. Run to his word. Run to a brother and sister and say, how can I know this God who sent his son to save sinners like me? Let's go to the last half of the sermon. I know you got the three more notes here. They're all going to be really quick here. Uh, really, we, we see this final piece in the next point, and that is the nations build a house for David. I'm not going to spend a ton of time, I'm barely any time here, because as you'll see, it's going to point forward to something in the future. But I do want to read this and make this quick point in verse 11. It says, Then Hiram the king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. You've got to appreciate the contrast right there, don't you? The Jebusites, what do they do? They taunt, mock, and rage against David. But Hiram knows a king when he sees one. He sends gifts to the king. He sends an envoy of not only materials, 
but people to build David a house. And I want to mention this uh, because we are going to talk about this a lot. There's, there's this ongoing house motif that's going on here as well. Because as David has the nations build him a house, he's going to soon turn and offer to build the Lord a house. And the Lord will say, no, you won't build me a house, but I will build a house for you. And we'll see that when we get to it, but we got to keep moving here. So let's move along. Because we then see an established kingdom for an unfaithful people. An established kingdom for an unfaithful people. I want you to hear this. What God does, he does for the sake of his people. It's a beautiful promise we have here in verse 12 of chapter 5. Look at what it says again. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom why? For the sake of his people, Israel. Hear this, church family. What God does, he does for the sake of his people. Always. This is another one of those fundamental truths you need to constantly remind yourselves. Remember, who are we talking about here? We're talking about a God who has no need. We're talking about a God who does not do things in order to meet some need in and of himself. To get something that he does not already have. And so why does he do what he does? So all of creation might partake in his goodness and glory. It's for your sake. I mentioned this last week, but consider that he's doing this for a people who have rejected him. These people are the same people for whom God continues to act for their sake. And, and this is why, church, that God's steadfast love will continue to be the theme of our song. His immutable, unchanging love determined before the creation of the world for those who trust in Christ Jesus. God acts for our sake. He is truly good, kind, and benevolent, always present, always providing, always moving the whole redemptive enterprise forward for all of his children. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, here's the good news. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The whole redemptive project hinges on that very reality and truth. The resolution of the conflict in 2 Samuel 5, it's quite apart from any act of God's people. He called forth David long before David was ever an idea in their head. They were content under the reign of the evil one, meaning Saul. It was God's idea to send forth David to have him suffer so that in the fullness of time, he might exalt him and establish his kingdom. Listen, friends, if you're tired, you need to hear this. If you're scared, you need to hear this. If you're tempted or doubting or struggling to see how God can be good in the world and our lives can be so broken and dark, please hear this. God is always acting for the sake of his people. Always. And, and get this, not just collectively, but individually. For you, brother, for you, sister, he's acting for your sake. Okay, so there it is. This is the climax of the Old Testament narrative. We're all convinced now, right? But we know part of the reason why this is probably not so memorable is because this is not the conclusion. See, there are already hints in this chapter that we see, subtle hints, but I'll mention one that I've argued for already in a previous sermon so I don't have to recount the others. There are subtle hints here that very clearly show us that David is not 
the one. David is not the one. We have this in verses 13 through 16, but really what we just read there is a list of names. And what do we see David doing in verses 13 through 16? He takes more wives and more concubines. Contrary to the king's law in Deuteronomy 17, not only so, but we also see one of the names mentioned is Solomon, a son that he will have from a wife he steals from another man. See, there's already the hint that David is not the one. Or to put it another way, this kingdom will be shaken. It's already foreshadowed, but soon it will come very clear. This summit of the Old Testament does not get us to heaven. It doesn't reach all the way there. and It's more like it takes us near the top where we get a clearer view of what God is doing in the midst of his people and a greater hope of what he is going to bring about. That, that is a, a greater David, a greater kingdom, a kingdom that will not be shaken. You see, I want you to know this. One of the things I love about the book of Judges that we read from earlier is, is where it begins. The book of Judges starts by saying, and this judge died, and the judge died, and the judge died. And before you even get into the book of Judges, one of the things you learn is that a dead judge isn't of much use. A dead judge can't help you. But you know what the opposite truth of that is? A faithful, living king, a resurrected king, a king who defeated death can never stop. Amen. Ever. If he is the king and his kingdom is established, then when does his rule end? Upon his death. Well, what if you have a king that never dies? Amen. Then you'll have a reign that will never come to an end. Right. You have a kingdom that will never be shaken. The world has never seen such a thing. You know that, right? All we know in this world is the shaking of kingdoms. Think of the greatest kingdoms in all the world. You know what they all have in common? They're all bones and ashes. They've all been laid low. Name one kingdom that has endured. They have all shaken. Where's your hope, saints? What kingdom are you trusting in? What kingdom are you longing for? The continuation of a kingdom that is going to be shaken? We'll finish here in Hebrews 12. You can turn there, but it's going to be on the screens again. I want you to see this. Hebrews 12, 25, we start here and it says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Him being, who speaks being, of course, Christ. He says, For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he's promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's what we're waiting for, church. That which will remain forever and ever. So one final application and the good news is this verse applies itself. How do we respond to these things? The author of Hebrews goes on, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is an all-consuming fire. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 5 is a temporary 
prototypical, it's a type, physical resolution to the conflict of the redemptive narrative of the entire scripture that points us toward the anti-type. The eternal spiritual resolution that Jesus Christ brought when he came into the world, when he took on our flesh and blood in order to live a life that we could not live and die a death that we deserved. And being raised on the third day, he has inaugurated his kingdom. So 2 Samuel 5 helps prepare the people of God for the ultimate fulfillment of that which it points to. The reconciliation of the whole earth to our creator. What we needed was a king and a kingdom. And the good news is what we've received is a king and a kingdom. So let us offer worship to our God with reverence and godly fear for our God is an all-consuming fire. Would you stand as we close together in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, Lord, how faithful, how kind you are. Thank you for reminding us this morning that all you do, you do for the sake of your people. That even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Help us to remember, Father, the battle belongs to you. Salvation belongs to you. You are continuing to work out among us what you have begun in us. And so, Father, would you help us to trust you more, to bring it to completion. Thank you for Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.